Hello, 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 and welcome back to the SLP Corner podcast. This week's guest is Jessie Ginsberg. She is a speech-language pathologist and CEO of Pediatric Therapy Playhouse, a multidisciplinary clinic in Los Angeles. She is an internationally known autism specialist and the creator of ASD from the Inside Out, an online course that teaches SLPs innovative ways to assess and treat young children on the autism spectrum. Jessie is a national presenter on autism, contributor to the American Speech-Language Hearing Association magazine, and a board member of the California Speech-Language Hearing Association. Association. So with that, welcome to the podcast this week. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. We've kind of been like talking back and forth for seems like forever, like months now to try to meet up and talk about this. So I'm really excited to connect with you. Today, we're going to be talking all about sensory processing, sensory preferences. We're going to try to have a really detailed, but also clear and concise podcast for you guys. So you can just get a few takeaways for your clinical practice. So anyone who's been listening to the podcast recently, you know that I'm obsessed with analogies. I love them. They help me understand things so much clearer and I just find them incredibly helpful. So Jesse has an analogy for sensory processing. So let's just start off the podcast with introducing this analogy to the listeners and talking a little bit about that. Sounds great. I love a good analogy too. So I'm glad we're on the same page here. Um, but I really feel like as SLPs, one of the almost missing components to what we learn in school is sensory processing. And for those of us working with the autistic population, this is such a huge part of what we do. And I mean, I know that the field is so broad and there's so much to learn and it's impossible to learn everything we need to know in school, but it really feels like this is such a critical part of working with autistic children. And it's something that we just don't get to learn enough. So this is an analogy that I came up with to very easily explain sensory processing to parents. And now I use it to train other professionals in my courses and whatnot. But basically the analogy is picture a seesaw and sensory processing is just like a seesaw. So I like to say, if a seesaw is balanced, that is representing a regulated child. If a seesaw is tipped, that represents a dysregulated child. So I use this analogy in lots of ways, but the number one way is by explaining to parents that when a seesaw is balanced, when a child is regulated, that is what I call their optimal learning zone. Meaning the child is in a place where he's attentive, he's engaged, he's ready to learn. Because so many of us, and especially those of us working with the little ones, we might see a lot of tantrums. So what happens is we're in the middle of our session and a child might start to have a tantrum or get really upset about something. And what happens is their seesaw tips. And <laughs> if they're like any, either of my children, it might tip very, very quickly. And the idea behind that is that the best thing and the most important thing that we can do in that moment is bring the seesaw back to center get the child back to a regulated state, because if we don't, he is not processing our language, he's not thinking about the activity at hand, and in order to really learn, we need the child to be in a regulated state. So flat seesaw, optimal learning zone, they're feeling, they're regulated, everything's going well, 
And then when they're dysregulated, which could come out in a variety of ways, the seesaw is tipped. That's a really clear way to think about it. I love that. And I like thinking about just the degree to which a, a seesaw can tip because sometimes a seesaw can tip just a little bit. Maybe a child's just a little bit dysregulated and it just is going to take maybe one positive experience to get them back to center and get them back to a balanced state versus maybe the child's seesaw is completely tipped. And in that case, it might take five, six more positive experiences to get a child back to center. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are definitely different degrees of dysregulation, but in order for a child to really be learning the most possible, I mean, in the most efficient way possible, we really want that child to be in their optimal learning zone and regulated. It kind of makes me think of the zones of regulation, like red, green, yellow, blue, in a visual way, which can be really nice for everyone who's a visual learner, where instead of, because even the graph itself is usually set up like blue, green, yellow, red. So it would make more sense if it was like positioned where this is, that when it's flat, it's green, and then shows the different degrees of uh, the intensity of dysregulation. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I agree with you. I love the visuals and I think it's really easy. And I think it's nice to just in a session whip out a piece of paper and draw that for a parent. And it's just makes a bigger impact when you're explaining it. Yeah. Yeah. Already. That's like a really nice clear takeaway because I definitely like I've just started practicing and that's all the sensory stuff is an area I just don't feel that comfortable in. So it's nice to have just like a specific example that you can use when these things come up in sessions. Yeah, and so easy. And I think that one of the scariest things for us is when we're working with parents and we're with a child who is clearly not in this place where he's ready to learn, but we feel so much pressure on ourselves to be working on language. That's why they're here, you know? So being able to very clearly explain to the parent that here's why we're not working on language at this exact moment. Here's why our job is to get him regulated. And being able to explain that to a parent makes them understand why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually so true. Because whenever I've had sessions, especially if you're like working in a private practice setting where it's not publicly funded, so the parents are paying, you almost feel that sense of like, I hope you realize what I'm doing because I know the time is ticking by of your session, but he's clearly not in a state to be working on these specific goals right now. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Okay, so when we're thinking of if children are regulated or if they're dysregulated, one thing we think of is their sensory preferences and what like certain things will make them feel better or on the flip of that coin is like things that they're aversive to and they don't like but thinking about sensory preferences because this could help with keeping them feeling regulated how do you determine that <laughs> like do you have any tips and tricks to begin with on just determining a child's sensory preferences every child is so different and i find this can be challenging on its own and then i'd like to talk a little bit or maybe you want to talk about it together but just how once we've determined it how do we figure out how to use that in our sessions yeah so i mean there are tons of ways to determine sensory preferences i always involve the parents and figuring that out because parents know a lot about their kids. And, you know, that's one thing I have in my course, for instance, is sensory preferences checklist, but I'm pretty sure you could just Google and find lots of them. But I think there's a big 
misconception almost that all we need to do is figure out what the sensory preferences are because once we know, we can use them. But it's not necessarily that simple, which is not something we think about often. But for instance, a child might seek vestibular input. So they might really like moving around, swinging, spinning, jumping, running. But just because that is a preference doesn't mean that that is what the child might need in that specific moment. There's actually four different sensation patterns. So a child can be a seeker, meaning he's looking for that input, can be a vo an avoider, meaning moving away from the input or bothered by the input. A child can be what's called a bystander, which means they are not necessarily aware of the input that is around them. And then a child can be a sensor, meaning they're extra sensitive or more likely to notice input around them. So if you are giving a lot of movement to a child who already is really alert and already has a lot of energy, all we're going to do is increase that level of arousal and get them to a place where they're dysregulated. Just because a child might be a seeker, for instance, of vestibular input doesn't mean that that is what we need to be using in our session in that moment. So something that's really important and, and it's funny because sensory preferences are kind of a buzzword, something we hear about and people know what that means generally and that we use, but without considering the child's level of arousal, it, it is not nearly as useful as we want it to be. So what's really important is to think about the child's level of arousal, which falls directly under their state of regulation. And from there, determining which of their sensory preferences will benefit them when they're in that current state. So I like to describe arousal levels. If you think about a child who is high arousal, that's Tigger. That's bouncing all over, moving all over, kind of nonstop. If you think about a child who's low arousal, you could think of Eeyore. Not necessarily slow moving, but almost you feel like they're a little bit more passive and just lower energy. So for a child who is low arousal, for a child who is Eeyore, that child will definitely benefit from lots of sensory input that is going to be alerting. So generally speaking, vestibular input is alerting. So things like spinning and movement, is alerting for a child. So if a child is low arousal and we give them a lot of alerting input, that is going to bring up their arousal level to a more optimal level. And that goes directly back to the seesaw that we were talking about, which is what is the optimal state that we can get this child in so that he's ready to learn. So if a child is high arousal or low arousal, neither one of those is going to be optimal. So then if we have a child coming in like Tigger, moving all over the room, our job is to give that child calming input and bring that child down so that they're in an optimal state. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. So, <laughs> so we can start with, like you said, utilizing like some sort of checklist to go through, talk to the parents, use our observations to figure out what's going on, what are their preferences. 
but then that's not necessarily enough. We need to be thinking about their level of arousal and whether that's a high or low level of arousal. And then we can move on from there once we have that information. Yes. And every child, like you said earlier, you hit the nail on the head, every child's different. Mm -hmm. So what's calming for one child? Yes, there are some activities generally that are calming for most children, but what's calming for one child isn't necessarily going to be calming for another. So you really need to know what is calming. You know, for instance, some of us like light massages and some of us like deep massages. Mm -hmm. And some of us, if you give, come up to me and give me a light massage, that's going to make me more alert because it's kind of, you know, might tickle someone for instance. So we need to know in that moment, well, out of those sensory preferences, what types of activities are going to be calming for this particular child and what are going to be alerting. Do you find that with the same children, this also differs session by session? Like it's not even that there's a clear pattern because you were talking about the sensory patterns, which I think is really interesting because I hadn't heard that it's spelled out like that. So seeker, avoider, bystander, and then sensor. When we're thinking about those sensory patterns, is that something we're going to see in children continually or depending on the session or the day or what's going on, they might be different. They might have a different pattern. Yeah, they could definitely be different. And there could definitely be kids where you see them one day and they're really high level of arousal and the next day they're really low. And it could be affected by so many things. Um, you know, hunger, sleepiness, if they're in physical pain. I don't know if this ever happens to you, if you ever get observed, but any, I feel like anytime I observe one of my CFs, I'll observe the session and then she'll say, oh, he acted completely different today. Normally he is really, really moving and talkative and high arousal. And today he was just so quiet and low arousal, you know? So, and we're all like that. And that's normal for any of us. I think what's hard for us is that generally energy is contagious, right? Mm -hmm. Here's another analogy for you. You go to a football game or basketball game and the home team scores and everyone's on their feet cheering and you're cheering and like, I don't even like sports and I'm cheering because energy is contagious. Same thing if you go into work and then your coworkers are sitting around and they're just not having it that day and they're just complaining. It just brings down your mood too. So it's really easy for us to catch kids' energy and go along with that when in reality, it's almost that it's better for us to take on the opposite role. Because if we have a child who comes in and it's really high level of arousal and then we're just trying to move quickly and we're being loud and we're trying to keep up with them, all it does is increase their level of arousal because now they're catching our energy. And then we're going up and up and up. And then all of a sudden, kids dysregulated, you're probably dysregulated. We're not getting anything done. <laughs> so it's, it's a very unnatural thing to do. But the best thing you can do when you have a kid come in who's really overstimulated and high level of arousal to just be very calm because you're trying to act as a calming source for that child and get that child to bring down his or her level of arousal to a more regulated state. That's such a good takeaway because 
it's so often you'll see when a child is so giggly and they're so silly that it's almost easy to match that. I have some kids who come in and they're always just jumping off the walls. So yeah, that's a really, really good takeaway. The last thing I want to talk about when we're thinking about like session planning and bringing all this information into our therapy activities, do you like plan ahead um, depending on, you know, your clients better as time goes by and you start planning ahead to have this information integrated into your sessions or how do you bring all of this and integrate it into your therapy? I do very little planning (laughs) in general because I think one of the best things we can do, especially for those of us working with autism is just, we need to be really flexible because you never know what the child's going to look like that day. Kind of like you said earlier, knowing things like the child's sensory preferences and generally speaking, what can be calming for the child and what can be alerting for the child, that is very valuable information to have, you know? So there is a degree of preparation in advance and knowing your client, just a little bit different than necessarily having the whole session planned out. But, you know, I do, that's part of what I do. And I have a sensory processing course that I teach SLPs where I teach them how to plan for sessions, but the truth is that you just never know what's going to work. And sometimes it's just as valuable to, f- to find out what doesn't work. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Can you share more about your course? Because anyone who's interested in listening to this, I'm sure will be interested in your course and then where people can find you. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So my course is a go at your own, go at your own pace online course for therapists working with young autistic children. And we go through six different core assessment and treatment areas, sensory processing and self-regulation is the first one. And that came about because I'm sure you've heard me preach this so much on social media, but I just found that when I was in school, all I was learning to treat in autism was language and social skills. And those were the only two areas we treated. And for me, having the background that I do in floor time, It just wasn't enough for me. I didn't feel like I was making a great enough impact when I was only focusing on those two areas. So in my course, I go through six core assessment and treatment areas, and I have a free assessment that people can grab on my website too, which is asdfromtheinsideout.com, which is a quick checklist of those six core areas. And it just helps you be able to focus your therapy on, you know, what really matters and what you could do in your sessions that are really going to move that child forward and I forget the second question you asked me um okay we'll move forward it is so true about what you said about us not learning in grad school about all these sensory preferences and everything so I was so excited to have an SLP on to talk about this topic so yeah I I want to check out that course as well it sounds really interesting and then my second question was where can everyone find you? I'm sure everyone who's listening to this already follows you, but where can they find you and follow you? These days, I spend a lot of time on Instagram, my day-to-day stuff, which is jessieginsberg.slp. And then I also have a Facebook group called Young Autism SLPs. It's a free group and we do, I do a lot of live trainings and things in there too. So Facebook or Instagram. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much. All right. I'll see everyone next Monday.